0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm coming to Australia, New Zealand and Canada with my new show, Recovery Live, this February, March and April. Tickets for new shows, because we've added shows, because they're flying off the shelves, these tickets. We've had to add shows to meet demand. Go to russellbrand.com while you can get them. Also, I'm speaking at the Conscious Life Expo, if you happen to be in Los Angeles, on the 8th of February. It's like a seminar and live show thing. So if you're in the LA area on the 8th of February, come check me i'm going to be in santa barbara performing my show recovery recovery live on the 12th of feb the california jam in costa mesa on the 14th of february valentine's day and san diego on the 19th of february you can get tickets for all those dates at russellbrand.com make sure to sign up at my mailing list at the same address to be the first told about new shows deals community building send us a help email tell us if you want to volunteer and join in this movement of awakening have you done the 12 line uh, the 12 day online course yet you got to do it it's fantastic people are loving it there's a beautiful community talking about that stuff it's really making a difference there are ways of awakening i think it might be free for a few more days before there's a cost incurrent Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos completely free and clips from this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos. If you want to reach me on social media, Rusty Rockets on Twitter, hashtag under the skin, And on Instagram, it's at Russell Brand, TikTok, Russell Brand, LinkedIn, Russell Brand, Russell Brand. This week, I spoke with Zaya Tong. Zaya is a science communicator and author of the fantastic book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World, which I found very helpful in fusing together scriptural spiritual theological ideas about the nature of reality and scientific underpinning through materialistic analysis sire has been one of my favorite guests in a long long while having said that what about logan paul last week here are some of your comments about that fantastic and delightful young man who has become an adored friend of mine as as Ziya Tong actually I'm using this whole podcast to meet people I mean it's absolutely fantastic I'm glad you listened to it I've got to tell you but for me it's a wonderful educational tool and a lovely way to meet people here's some comments about Logan Paul NS2 says oh no NS2 days ago said great 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 interview Russell kind investigative respectable respectful yeah conscious connected chloe spiritual space goes russell it was interesting to see where logan has come since his his controversies he's clearly remorseful of some of his past actions and has been able to reflect and learn but obviously quite self-aware of the fact he still has a lot of growth he isn't looking for sympathy he just seems to want to move forward as a person you russell actually brought up an interesting point that some of what if some of what he has done was done as a performance artist rather than a youtube star he probably would have been received differently that said neither of you are making excuses for the past rather you're reflecting and learning And it was an interesting listen. Thank you. Cheers for that, Chloe. I mean, here we are. I'm just an older man talking to a younger man about how we can improve ourselves. I found him to be an extremely bright, talented, gregarious, garrulous, energetic individual. I've been on his podcast since. I just adore him. I think he's a really lovely guy. Jasmine Davidson goes, Just finished it. Okay, this was absolutely lovely. Truly wholesome. See, everyone's enjoying it. Kerry Lucas, I have to say, I've never listened to this young man and I've disliked him because of what I've heard. After watching this, I've realised once again that I shouldn't follow the crowd. Good lesson to learn, isn't it, Kerry? For all of us. I'm not saying I like him necessarily. He'll come and he's gorgeous. But he came across humble, aware and self-reflective. His ego wasn't as notable as I expected. He's a young man that appears to be trying his best to grow and learn. This was a good one to watch. Yeah, I really, really like him. I'm a huge fan myself. I have no equivocation no doubt in saying what an adorable person now let's get into zaya tong an educator a science communicator a humorous woman a woman who helped me look at reality differently and make me recognize that i'm living in a curated and limited space even from a scientific perspective not just from a mumbo jumbo spiritual perspective but one that i like Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful rule. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an
1: ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Zaya Tong, thank you for coming on Under the skin.
1: A true pleasure, Russell Brand. I've been waiting for this moment.
0: Yeah, I've been waiting for it as well. Ever since I read your book, The Reality Bubble, I began to question the nature of material reality from a scientific perspective. For people who haven't read your book yet, and I'm not even sure if it's been published because you sent me it prior to publication, would you tell us a little about what The Reality Bubble is about?
1: Sure thing. It has been published, first of all. It just came out in the UK and it's been out in Canada for some time. The basic uh, premise of the book is it's about uh, 10 of humanity's biggest blind spots. And the notion is that all of us do live in a reality bubble. And when you inhabit a bubble, I think a lot of people have heard of stock market bubbles or real estate bubbles, what that fundamentally means is that you have a warped perception of reality. So I really wanted to investigate that notion, a lot of the illusions that we're subjected to in our daily lives. And one of the things that I realized, because I've been a science broadcaster for the last 15 years, is that scientists have uh, really interesting ways of seeing the world. And because they work in so many different fascinating fields, they see the world through many different lenses. So, for example, we know that, um, you know, rockets or, or astrophysicists, for example, can image black holes. These are things that we simply can't see with the naked eye. And we know that microbiologists can see tiny, tiny life forms that are also you know, not not within the realm that our own eye can perceive. And so I really wanted to start to parse all those images together to see what picture of reality we would get then. And the result is essentially this book. And it's a vastly different reality than what our senses can perceive.
0: Thank you for that, beautiful Pracy. What... One of the examples that I've been hawking around and crediting you as I do so is the one that you give about um, the amount of space in a helium molecule and and then using that example to set up an understanding of a neutrino. Uh, Could you talk us through that, please?
1: (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, essentially, uh, it's tricky because those are just illustrations. And they aren't, uh, they aren't exactly representative. Because I think many of us know that most of the atoms are, are empty space. I think you've heard that. And I think you've also probably heard that if you were to actually remove all of the empty space from, say, your body, you would probably shrink down in terms of matter to the size of cayenne pepper. Do you know what I'm saying? So we are, you know, we are mostly space, atoms are mostly space, the electrons that orbit, Uh, The atoms are about a kilometer away from the center. Um, So there is a vast amount of space. Everything is mostly comprised of space. So it is a true illusion that we see so much solidity around us.
0: And how does that? Uh, and that you use the example of that if you considered the nucleus of a helium atom to be the size of a golf ball, the surrounding electrons would be a kilometer away. And that if you considered a neutrino to be the size of a golf ball, that the the, um, the atom that it's related to, as it were, would be the size of our solar system. I mean, like so. I suppose what I took from that was that. Our perspective on reality is so defined by sensory limitation and our animalistic worldview that we can hardly have the right to call it reality at all. It's just such a small bandwidth, just a small piece of the picture. So all of our emotions, everything that we believe, all of our philosophies and determinations and senses of what reality is and what's right and wrong is based on this sort of smithereen of information.
1: Well, yeah, we're, you know, we're pretty basic meat flesh when you think about it, right? Like our eyes, our ears, our noses, we only have a, a small spectrum of information that we're able to perceive. I think in terms of the visual spectrum, it's something like 0.0035 of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can picture as color. And so when I started this book, I actually quoted Buckminster Fuller because I loved his quote, which is really, 99% of all of reality is invisible and not perceptible to human beings. But by using scientific tools like the x-rays that we have today or you know, the microscopes, the telescopes, we can begin to see a much bigger picture of the reality of the world in which we inhabit.
0: Yes, but still, that reality is being filtered through a limited consciousness—a consciousness that is schooled on the like limited instruments that have only ever perceived this narrow bandwidth. So, everything is so interpretive to to almost prohibit any real conclusions being drawn in terms of uh, holistically, at least, or in terms of how we see the totality of things.
1: Yeah, you've certainly exploded you've certainly exploded that notion. In in the in the book though I really try to stick with what modern and contemporary science can tell us is true. Um, So that's why I don't get into the notion of are we living in a hologram or any of those things, any of those theories that, for example, Elon Musk is quite fond of, because those things, as far as I know, are simply quite untestable. They're quite theoretical. And what I'm interested in is what you can actually prove and what scientists can actually tell us is reality right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is the very essence of science, isn't it? Can you tell us some more? uh, Can you give us just some more examples from the reality bubble that will knock people's little socks off?
1: Um, let's see. I think that uh, there were so many different things that I learned, but of course I'm very fond of animals and animal behavior, having grown up with David Attenborough, of course, as well, and working with... More... in
0: the same house.
1: <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I loved was just seeing the way that animals perceive the world. I love the fact that, you know, raptors and and eagles and bees are able to see in in ultraviolet and the fact that snakes are able to see in in infrared you know all these different ways of seeing the world uh, that we're just simply not privy to And so I include some of those studies, for example, even with snakes as an example. You can blindfold a snake, and because they have these pit organs in the front of their faces, um, they can capture their prey perfectly. If you have a little mouse running around in a dark room and the snake has been blindfolded, it can still catch it because it has a different way of seeing the world, one that we are not able to see. But of course, using our technologies and our tools, I don't know if you remember when the Boston bomber was caught, uh, that was a big a big uh, bit of news in North America, they had uh, different ways of, and different tools and technologies in order to, you know, heat-seeking vision, which of course we quite often see in the movies, and the Boston bomber was hiding in the dark under a tent, uh, under a tarp, under a boat, and they would have never spotted him if they didn't have this other way of seeing. But uh, other animals might have seen them. For example, a snake might have been able to detect that heat inside of of the boat that was covered by the tarp.
0: So there, there are life forms that have access to realities that we are excluded from. You know the thing that you said that you you know that you don't want to get into, it, it, you know, like hologram theory, or we could already be living in an artificial intelligence simulation because it's untestable. When when. Elon Musk said that, I was struck by how, as a template, it's identical to many spiritual um, archetypes. The, the idea that the world is an illusion, that this is happening in the, the mind of God, that, that, that reality itself is a construct, that it's conceptual. Like These things are found in sort of Gnostic Christianity, Sufism, Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of these ideas that are sort of, or not all of, some of these ideas that are latterly being verified by scientific method have existed in theological form for millennia. What do you think about that?
1: Well, uh, you know, I I think that the tricky thing with a lot of what we consider uh, spiritual investigations is that they are largely untestable uh, with science. But you have to keep in mind, too, that, Ultimately, what scientists are is they are reality testers. They are constantly dabbling in the world of the invisible. They're always playing with things that human beings can't see. Um, you know that's what Einstein was doing with like you know time and space. When I start off the book, I talk about Van Leeuwenhoek and everybody thought that he was completely mad because here he was talking about these tiny little animalcules that he could see in this pot of water, but to everybody else this was completely invisible. And so that's the thing that I find uh um, i don't know heartening and quite wonderful is that um, sometimes you can actually bridge the spirit and the sciences, and the science is helping us to prove that the world uh, that we that we picture isn't quite as as normal as as we think it is it isn't quite as everyday or quotidian
0: yeah uh, yeah no i I, I appreciate that that i'm interested in the nature of consciousness itself the the idea that we're having an absolute experience of reality what are your views on the found on the how consciousness is formulated do you have anything on uh, the neurological basis of consciousness and uh, the relationship between consciousness itself and sensory experience
1: That's such a big question, and I wish that I could answer it, but I don't feel qualified to answer that question simply because I'm not a a neurologist or a neurobiologist or, you know, somebody like David Eagleman, I think, would be primed to answer a question like that because he would have studied consciousness uh, very, very deeply. And consciousness is is one of those things that, as far as I'm aware, in terms of my studies, we still don't really have a very good understanding of what it is just yet. We understand the way our neurons are connected. We understand the way our sight systems work. But that fundamental essence of consciousness, that sense of being, and that question of, um, is all of reality just a, a, a sort of creation, a sort of illusion of the brain, that was one of the things that even Einstein couldn't say that he could prove, so I certainly don't feel qualified to say whether or not, uh, whether or not reality is real or not, because that's just one of the big, big philosophical and scientific questions of our time, and I'm poking at the reality in a reality bubble in a a very different way, because I want to peel back that reality bubble, because the the beginning is just to say to us, hey, you know, just to sort of shake us by the shoulders and say, what we perceive isn't exactly the truth, but then there are many, many other layers as you start moving into the book that are beyond just our, our biological reality, but looking at our societal rea- reality and our civilizational realities as
0: well. T- tell me uh, uh, about what social assumptions uh, we can examine or question from this perspective of evaluating our reality bubble.
1: So I'm one of those people who has shower thoughts, you know, like, uh, and, and one of the shower thoughts that I had uh, some time ago was uh, one that I wrote about in the book and one that kind of jogged and put a lot of the ideas together in the book, which is the idea that in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere, except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes.
0: I love that. That's brilliant, that bit of the book. I'm really glad you've brought that up. Yeah, tell me more about that.
1: Well, I just think that it's very strange, right? Because here we are, we're the most powerful species on earth, and we are the only animal that doesn't fundamentally have a deep understanding of how it survives. So we're looking everywhere. We're we're very, very distracted. And at the same time, of course, we have cameras focused on us in this deep surveillance state that we're living in. But isn't it a bit strange that the things that, uh, that keep, you know, 7.6 billion uh, of us primates alive is something that very few of us know about. So as I started investigating further, I realized how little we know about where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, or where our waste goes. You know, I mean, that, that was one of the things that starts off the, the book, is talking about kids in the UK. You know, most of them, like 40% of them don't know that milk comes from cows. They think that, you know, cheese comes from plants because beyond the supermarket, beyond even just those supermarket aisles, everything becomes really quite vague. I think we have a sense that we know where food is coming from, but very few people peer and look deeper.
0: Do you think that our reality, uh, you know, the the reality, say, of food production or the reality of waste management or the the reality of how energy is processed created generated harnessed uh, the way the energy is harnessed do you think that the fact that these methods are concealed is is telling us something significant about uh, humankind's extraction from nature from our own nature and from nature itself
1: well i think if we think about cities cities are the ultimate habitat bubbles aren't they because they keep us sort of separate from nature. In fact, just about anything in a city is mostly dead. It is mostly processed, Um, you know, whether you're looking at the wooden structures or whether you're looking at your buildings that are made out of plywood, you're not looking at the fact that, you know, the chalk was once, you know, sort of dead beings from millennia ago, or the fact that our our whole civilization is being run on, you know, all the oil and gas is essentially a, a prehistoric um, life system that existed that we are sort of incinerating and burning up into the sky. None of that is really visible to us inside of a city. So that, that's certainly a very big bubble that keeps everything far away from us. And there are aspects of that that are deliberate, and there are aspects of that that aren't deliberate. So if we think about things like, if we just return to the simple example of food and, uh, and slaughterhouses, originally there was a great need to move slaughterhouses away and off into the suburbs and into the distance because of disease because of rot because of you know we wanted to keep those things away from us just like the the tangle of wires and electricity we wanted to sort of you know make it like an apple universe you know clean everything up bury it keep it away from us and so in doing so we've actually constructed a world Um, where we we don't see what's happening. So that part is deliberate. But then there's other parts that aren't so deliberate.
0: Yes, I wonder about those parts that are, you know, because another word for not deliberate might be unconscious and that we are unconsciously creating a reality that we are not integrated with, where we float or at least rest on a perfect apple veneer, while being disconnected from our own true nature, our own animalism, our own sexuality, our own drives, our own uh, violence, our own animalism. But because we are living in a pristine presentation of reality that serves the ongoing commodification of all resources and of life itself, a kind of... Biopolitical totalitarianism, where human life and human consciousness is only permitted to exist within very restrictive parameters that do not relate to an ultimate reality, but to a prescribed reality that facilitates the ongoing hegemony of particular elites and powerful institutions.
1: Very well said.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Give me a round of applause. Oh, my God.
1: But yeah, no. I, th- I think that uh, I think that sex and violence are are two of the things that um, we are hiding from ourselves in a very big way, right? Here we are, the species. We like to think of ourselves as very genteel, very civilized, but here we are killing sixty six billion animals uh, a year, right? Domesticated animals, and we don't see any of that. The other aspect of it that we don't see is their sexuality, and I write about that in the book. How you know, there's an absolutely multi-million dollar industry built on sperm, the jizz biz, right? The way in which we basically stop animals from having sex today so that we've hijacked their entire biology so that we can create as many of these animals as we want so that there's 15 more of these domesticated animals, 15 to one, right? 15 domesticated animals to one wild animal. And today you've probably heard the statistic that there's only about, you know, in terms of uh, vertebrate biomass, it's about three to four percent are wild animals on the planet. The rest are our domesticated animals, our quote unquote and human beings. And that's fundamentally because we hijack the sex life of of all these other creatures, these cows and these pigs. And so, yeah, sex and violence, these are things that um, we really hide from our own nature and we industrialize it so that we don't see it as well. And the impact of that is catastrophic.
0: Yes. It's, I, I took that all on board, which wasn't easy because quite early on in the diatribe, you used the phrase Jisbees, which is, is <laughs> difficult to get beyond as a, a piece of language, Zaya. Uh, like, um, so my um question here. Oh yeah, because like of the terrible, tragic fires in uh, Australia, like we've heard that. You know, believe like maybe more than a billion animals have died and that is regarded as a tragedy because it is as a result of natural activity and of course it is a tragedy but when paired with the you know the utilized uh execution of 60s did you say 66 how many what was the number you said for
1: i said 66 billion but to be honest that's not counting fish so the minute we count fish i don't know how many the number becomes a lot
0: higher, right? Because I'm talking well, telling me like... why you didn't count fish in the first place. <laughs> got we
1: can't laugh about the death of all life, okay? <laughs> but anyway, it's a huge and catastrophic number, but
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't just sit in a podcast laughing at the death of life forms. I mean is that what entertainments become? Two people speaking over Skype, laughing at death.
1: Terrible. Terrible. Anyway.
0: yeah we really do have to move on by uh, beyond that
1: you were saying australia though russell
0: yeah, the reason I said it was because we, we, there is certain because this speaks to your point. Thank you for being so professional. It speaks to your point about uh, your your guiding metaphor, the reality bubble, is that uh, the way that we see reality is continually curated. That, that this the death of these billion animals is a a, a tragedy, and again, I'm, that's not something I'm querying or questioning. But we are never presented with the comparable information that 66 billion non-aquatic animals are dying every year. Anyway, so it's like, it's like, isn't it? Like civilization. When you were talking about civilization being just, we're surrounded by death. We're like the fuel we're burning up into the sky is sort of dead prehistoric energy, and that that chalk is, you said, dead ancestors. I mean, I'm like hearing this stuff, and what you're telling me is true, but it's a, 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 a and it feels like an, an, a total abstraction. It feels to me like we've kind of forgotten how to live in reality there's no humility and some of that might I I might say and this is curious to say it to you because obviously everything that you um, present comes from a scientific perspective and it's that actually which fascinates me most about you it has come about because of a, a kind of a, a perspective of utility from human beings that the world the natural world each other is all there to be used primarily as a resource you know that this that is in itself, a concept, a, a, a reality bubble of its own. Do you think that this this new scientific understanding, this perspective that you are presenting through your work, can help to address that because, because of the obvious ecological imperatives and one could argue an ideological per- uh, imperative because we are living in an illusion. We are abstract from our own nature and we are becoming uh, ex- um, abstracted from love even.
1: I think one of the things that I get into in the later chapters is the science of ownership. And really this notion and the crux of the book kind of rests on this idea of how we as human beings came to this really rather silly notion that we own the world, that we can own at our own discretion all these other animals, that we have the right to own the trees, that we have the right to own water. All all of nature is subject to the notion of ownership. But of course, um, you know, as we get further into the book, the whole idea that you can own something is so much of an illusion as well. Um, so I think that's one of the, that's one of the key take home points that I really want people to start to think about in the book. And the other one is really um, the connection of things. And, and just to hark back to what you were saying in terms of 1.25 billion animals in Australia dying, and then the 66 billion animals that are dying because of, of our you know factory farm processes, there's a huge link there that nobody sees. You know, I remember seeing, seeing those images of the incinerated poor kangaroos when people were going down the highway, right, in Australia. But of course, you know, you've got, uh, you know, eating meat is something that is, and, you know, animal agriculture is hugely contributing to climate change. So there's a very big link between the eating of all those animals, you know, and all the methane and all the, you know, basically the greenhouse gases, and the heat that ends up in Australia incinerating those animals on the other side of the world. So those things are connected, and many of these processes are connected. And so that's why the book actually weaves so many of those different ideas together.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. This idea of, I, I suppose from the advent of agriculture onwards, the teleology has been towards greater and greater utility and exploitation. Presumably prior to agriculture human beings moved nomadically and regarded ourselves, themselves, as in some degree of necessary harmony with nature, both seasonal and through availability of food sources we would presumably have felt a kind of real symbiosis from ag- from agriculture onwards this idea that we can manage maneuver and control and manipulate nature um it, it evolves and develops to the point now where as you say we live in cities where nature is you know something that might be in a, a glass bowl or glanced at on a flat screen do you feel that the narrative of scientific and technological progress which is the sort of abiding narrative of our time can ever be challenged and how do you see that happening
1: yeah i've never been a technological determinist so i'm not the kind of person who actually believes that uh technology will save us just as i don't believe that billionaires will save us although that no.
0: I don't believe billionaires in technology. They're the billionaire. Oh, Fortunately, some billionaires came. They're billionaires. They're the problem. But I think
1: that, um, you know, I, I think that there are inherent biases in the way in which we look at the world. One of the problems with science is it has a tendency to objectify everything that it's looking at. It tends yes. to dissect and it tends to treat everything as this sort of third party other, and that can be sometimes a really damaging point of view. So I I don't think that it is the be all end all, but I do think that, um, we also, it's strange, right? We trust science when it's convenient, which is also completely shit. You know what I mean? All these people who have all the benefits of modern day science, they travel on their high speed rails, they travel in planes, but then you tell them what NASA actually has, you know, proof of in terms of climate change. And somehow they get to toss that out with the wind. So I don't think we get to cherry pick um, science. And again, this is just people who have just been dedicating their lives to making observations. They're almost like Buddhists in the sense. Instead of sitting there and focusing on eating, you know, grains of rice day by day, they're focusing on their data or whatever they're actually studying. So I have a tremendous respect for for people who sit there and focus on one subject for most of their lives. And I I think that um, I just don't think, I think it's troubling that, you know, we're seeing this real decline in, in, in in the sciences right now. We're seeing a lot of this sort of, and that's the thing, like, I I love, I love what you do in your, your podcast, because you are focused on spirituality, but you're not debunking science. And sometimes, um, you know, for example, like with Goop, sorry, but you know, what I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing, uh, you're seeing examples here of people who are, who are focusing on On things at the expense of science. So I think that there's a bit of a difference.
0: Yes, I don't believe that we have to put aside our cynicism, skepticism, or our intellect in order to progress. But I do feel we need to consider that the presumed objectivity of science is existing within a larger, the larger, invisible ideology of what the academic mark fisher calls capitalist realism
1: science is just one way of seeing the world so you're you're just as blind you have just as many blind spots if you're only seeing the world through science and you don't know how to see it through arts you know and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And in fact, most of the uh, most of the Nobel laureates in the world, some of the most successful Nobel Prize winners in the sciences, um, have very sophisticated artistic hobbies, whether they're cellists or what have you. Because usually, you need a merging of of those two parts of the brains. So yeah, there was actually a study that looked at uh, scientific Nobel laureates, and many of them uh, had an arts background. So I'm a big I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of people who are uh, yeah basically basically able to blend the arts and the sciences that aren't quite so siloed.
0: Wow, thank you. I believe that the uh dominant economic ideology, which I would argue uh, governs the way that all subsidiary disciplines are practiced, including science argues that if something, ca- now, this is where I think we get into trouble with, uh, you know, scientism, uh, the assumption that all things must be regarded through a scientific lens is that if something cannot be materially measured, as you know, you yourself have said, you know, you're only interested in things that can be tested. And uh, as a, a person with a scientific perspective, as a scientist, then that's perfectly understandable. But the challenge, I think, is that when you only when if something cannot be materially measured, seen, heard like a, even if it 's seen through magnification you know or heard through examination of frequencies it, 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 the bias the continual bias is towards material outcomes, and given that we have a materialistic ideology underwriting all of this that has a, a strong zealous perspective of utility that is all about commodifying and purposing. You know because when you say you know that as you said you made that connection from a climate change perspective between the uh, consequences of agriculture and the fires in Australia, but I would say that but, uh, that many many more problems, arguably all non natural entropy related problems. Are as a result of our invisible but totalitarian economic ideology, which sees all things, the earth, human life, as various uh, forms of product. And, you know, the, the, your, your book, when, it, when you examine and demonstrate the limitations of the senses and means by which we establish this order, the order itself is necessarily challenged.
1: Yes, Um, and I think that in in relation to what you're talking about, I was just listening to some Alan Watts talks the other day. You probably know Alan Watts, super cool kind of sage figure.
0: With him in his tent. (laughs)
1: Um, And I liked what he said. Uh, I liked what he said when he was talking about, well, you know, uh, the Great Depression, essentially, right? Here we have the Great Depression, here we have this moment where we have this huge societal collapse, civilizational, really, in many, many different places, extreme poverty. And this is because the economy collapsed, right? The stocks collapsed. But ultimately, what relationship beyond our own construction of the game was there to the real world resources? There was still manpower and woman power. none of that disappeared. And he also said that all the resources were still there. It wasn't like all of a sudden the forest disappeared and all the fish were gone and like there was a depression because everything fricking vanished. No, it was just the structure and the organization and the lens through which we had warped our ways of seeing the world that caused the whole collapse. So that's part of this notion um, of that reality bubble too. Once we can pop the reality bubble, we can start to see the world in a whole new way. We don't have to be constrained by our own traps.
0: Yeah, we believe in these concepts so fundamentally... We don't recognise. Well, no, hold on a minute. There's still all the stuff we need. It's just we we're going to have to bypass this ideology. And he, as recently, obviously, as 2008, when the second when these economic systems collapse, they're artificially resuscitated through uh, through investment in order to maintain them. Whereas these, and obviously, and it's been said many times, these resources are never made available to people at the other end of the uh, economic paradigm. Yeah, so it's like the already. We recognize that faith, the invisible world, and ideologies are what governs our reality. All we're discussing is which ones. We're not discussing whether or not invisible ideologies will be dominant. You know, see, because what they always take recourse to, the powerful, in inverted commas, is that no, this is reality. This is the way that reality operates. We have to do this. But no, it's just a highly uh, questionable construct.
1: Well, that's the thing that I I, uh, I liked. I actually quote um, a book called *The Rights of Nature* in my own because I thought it was quite fascinating. This notion of like today we're starting to give uh, we're starting to give the rights of, of nature back to itself. For example, there are rivers that um, are basically are persons, right? You've probably heard about that. There's a a river in uh, New Zealand that was given personhood. There's a part of the Amazon basin that's been given personhood. And there was also a watershed that I wrote about in the book based on on the work from the man who wrote The Rights of Nature. And and it was absurd because a corporation came and challenged it. And the corporation was like, how dare you say that a watershed can have its own rights? It's not a person. It can't go into the court and defend itself. It can't do any of these things. And it's like, well... Fucking hell, neither can the corporation. The corporation <laughs> is absolutely an invention as well. So here was one completely abstract idea trying to take down a much more real one, trying to declare that it it had no right to exist. And, you know, you've got an, a corporate entity which is completely manufactured. And that's the thing that we've done. We've invested far too much into our... Um, You know structures of our own invention and and that's really largely to our detriment and as you know from the book that's what you know the latter part of the book really gets into
0: yes yes it does doesn't it now like my see the perspective that I've been in in investigating is how personal and cultural enlightenment we, and enlightenment really is just achieving a new perspective, looking at reality in a new way, in a different way. How that could perhaps amend some of the rather cataclysmic and serious issues, the apocalyptic issues that you are talking about in your book. You know that that we are in danger of uh, uh, eliminating our. Reason- <laughs> Well, they're not our resources, are they? Even calling them our resources is part of the problem. You know, I like that. There's that Osho quote, what is reality? uh, No, not what is reality. What is civilization? Civilization is a clearing in the forest. Uh, A a kind of acknowledgement that, yeah, we build, you know, like Manhattans of the mind and architectural civilization. But what is it really? It's just a temporary form that in the great scope of the limitless is is meaningless. So can we take recourse to eternal values? Can we look at ideas such as community, which I suppose is a reflection of oneness, integrity, which is a reflection of togetherness? Or this be where we resource our politics from rather than rather than uh, capitalism or or whatever this late stage capitalism we're enduring now is, that claims to be natural, but is really just the emphasis of one aspect of human nature, greed, acquisition, competition, uh, that has been harnessed and utilised now to to the very gates of hell.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And uh, I think the first three chapters of the book, which are our biological blind spots, are set up in order to investigate that notion of how we came to see ourselves as separate from the world, right? The very mm. first one looks at how we came to believe that we were the center of the universe. Uh, the second, in terms of our size, right, the the reality of our different sizes. The second one uh, is about how we came to see ourselves as separate from everything in the universe, as opposed okay, to... Good.
0: Pardon? Can you talk us through the second one? Because the first one is just like a, like our no understanding of astronomy, isn't it? That's what the first one was, if, if I remember What's right.
1: Like. The idea that everything is human-sized, right? Like, I mean, this whole you're, you're sitting in a whole studio right now that looks like it's human-sized, but it's very much a dollhouse world because yeah. you're larger than 95% of all animal species that are smaller than a human thumb, Right. If you were to sit in that room by yourself, you would be surrounded by millions and millions of life forms that would be completely invisible to your naked eye. I mean, you've got an entire civilization of bacteria sitting inside of your cheek. You know what I mean? Like, you are massive. But seen from an airplane, you're also fundamentally just a tiny little speck. And so that's what I write about. The first chapter is this notion of being microscopic giants. Um, But the person who discovered that really was Galileo, right? The person who also realized that we weren't the center of the universe. So that's the first chapter. And then the second chapter really goes into the notion of how we think we're separate from everything. But once you start turning us into that sort of, you know, cosmic fizz of like, you know, atoms and the like and neutrinos, the fact that you know that there's a hundred trillion neutrinos shooting through your body right now, Russell, right? Like you're basically like a ghost. You're not even there, you know? like, And so that chapter is really meant to show us how we're connected so deeply to everything. And then the third chapter is really about the fact that we came, we came to think that we're actually superior to all other earthlings, all other animal species on the planet. And so that's the chapter that really gets into the ways in which science has been able to show us all the marvelous ways that other animals can see the world that render us somewhat inferior in some ways. And those are just the first three, as you know, there's seven more. <laughs>
0: It's a magnificent achievement can you talk to me a little more about the that neutrino stuff because that's blown my silly little brain like the um i you know can you give us some idea of scale of neutrino how like of what a neutrino is how to sort of conceptualize it because as far as i could understand it was like tiny 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 particle of light
1: so much tinier than they're they're tiny particles a lot of them are made through the process of the sun's fusion and uh you know, you've heard of photons, but there's also, you know, these neutrinos, much, just tiny particles. And one of the parts of the book that I was fascinated by was a, a lab that is called the Super K, the Super Kamiokande. And it is in Japan, and it is housed inside of this mountain. And it's a lot like a James Bond lab, right? It's deep, like a kilometer deep, a mile deep into the, the heart of the mountain. And inside of this mountain the scientists were able to take an image of the sun, which is just uh, an incredible feat because of course there's no light inside of the mountain. So how did they do that? Well, they actually have ultra pure water, these tanks filled with ultra pure waters. If you, if you look, if you Google it, it'll blow your mind. It looks like a, a gigantic disco because they have all these crazy balls inside of there and like what looks like almost like a little mini swimming, well, a pretty large swimming pool. They've got canoes that they kind of row around in. And this ultra pure water, essentially what it's able to detect is neutrinos. Because every once in a while, even though these neutrinos are absolutely tiny, because there's so many of them, as I mentioned, a hundred trillion, just going through, you know, basically your thumb right now. Every once in a while, one of them kind of like snooker will hit an electron from one of the water molecules. And that'll create sort of like an optical sonic boom. And it releases a sort of blue light. And what it does, that's almost like a pixel. And so with all those different neutrinos that they collected coming not from the sky, from the bottom of the earth, right into the mountain, they were able to create an image of the sun from inside of the mountain, which just shows you using this neutrino that like, if you know how to see, you can make an entire mountain disappear. That's why science can be really fucking cool.
0: Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. And That there are like I like this idea of microscopic giants that 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 we that our our authority extends to the assumption of objectivity that the that that even through scale this is the size of reality. I once read something about even the way we conceptualize. Uh, like I like someone talked about an apple and said like Oh, if this is a, like that this is a bad apple, what we mean is we can no longer eat that apple. The apple has no values <laughs> at all there 's no such thing as a good apple or a bad apple. just all we 're talking about is whether or not it can be utilized, and that really all that 's happening is the molecules in the apple are moving further apart as it decays, and there is an optimum point for an apple for human nutrition, but all Reality.
1: Yeah. Oh, sorry, Russell. No,
0: you carry on. You're a scientist. I'm just making this shit up.
1: I'm just a science communicator, but um, and whatever. But what what you said is key because you talk about just one bad apple. And one of the incredible facts that I learned in writing this book is because food waste is such a big issue and people don't think about it, the equivalent amount of energy uh, in terms of all of our food waste that goes into digging it up, the oil, the shipping, the refrigerating, and all that stuff. That apple that we chuck away. It's the equivalent of all of the offshore oil exploration that the United States does for nothing. Because that's how much that's how many bad apples there are. That's how much food we just absolutely waste and we toss away because it doesn't actually reflect what we think is a good apple, because it might be malformed or bruised or what have you. And that. Oh, sorry. You go ahead.
0: I'm angry now. And this is why. Uh, it's not to do with you, you're terrific. It's, it makes, I'm angry about the very notion of conservatism, the idea that people say, no, this is reality, this is the this is the way that things have to be organised. You know, like, I mean, political conservatism, the idea that this we need to protect this. Because, of course, I know that human culture has created many, many beautiful things in many, many fields. But there is so clearly such a vast uh, 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 mammoth requirement for change, and such a potential for change, that the idea that people prevent it, prohibit it, don't even allow the ideological space to exist in order to preserve their own mostly financial and power-related interests, is an abomination.
1: Well, that's the good thing about what you're doing right now, right? Because largely what the problem is with the media is that the Overton's window is really fucking small, right? So when you're watching, and you've, you've heard Noam Chomsky say this, I'm sure, the idea that, you know, when you're watching all these chat shows, quite often it looks like there's a lot of opinions, right? There's the left and the right. But in fact, the way that the discussions are framed are so small. It's that whether you're on the left or the right, you're, 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 your actual field of conversation has already shrunk down. It's a tiny, tiny window. So to be able to stretch it and have those larger conversations, to push it and to, you know, create a larger stretch of elastic. That's what opens people's minds is when you can have discussions that exist beyond that regular framework of the norm.
0: I feel like, you know, I'm writing a book at the moment about God and the relevance of God in the modern world. And the reason I'm interested in this subject is because I feel that, pe- that we will we are about to experience a turning away, that people are about to become... Are palpably and demonstrably dissatisfied with the lives that they we are being offered, essentially lives underwritten by materialism, individualism, consumerism, the idea that we our primary roles as humans is to work and to consume, and the same way that you are through science remedying altering and uh, calibrating our perspectives because by introducing us to the 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 true limitations of what we regard to be reality i feel that by returning to some archaic understandings around god i'm talking almost uh, pre um, sort of pre monotheistic ideas of God, but also monotheistic ideas of God. But I'm saying, before the util before the utilisation of religion, before religion becomes about how to organise power and, and becomes about structures, when the the aspect of religion that is about an interface with oneness and the divine and about the practice of principles that are that acknowledge our oneness. I heard from a semantic perspective that the word. Um, Love, most common, the most common trait in a variety in you know of languages that love expresses is union, oneness, and this, and this idea of kindness and compassion is a kind of acknowledgement of a deeper reality that we are that we are one you spoke in your book about how we regard ourselves as separate individuals but really we are in constant interaction with reality we we, requ- we require so many things for our sustenance the air that we breathe, the biosystems that we are part of that it's an election it's a selection it's a choice to see yourself as an individual agent in the world and uh, but you know because of the sort of the construct the way that the ego is constructed the way that the senses operate the way that desire and drives appear to function, particularly in coordination with civilizing forces such as advertising and news media, so that we live continually on a frequency of fear and desire, unable to access parts of ourselves that see, or not see, but intuit a deeper reality of oneness, a reality that is continually concealed, primarily for materialistic uh, advantage for, uh, for a few institutions. My sense is, uh, Zaya, that through uh, a through a, a different approach to god and to the principles that could be derived from a different understanding of god and by which i mean oneness and love i suppose uh, we could perhaps develop some tools to challenge the uh, s- systems that we are currently living within and potentially could soon be dying under
1: mm-hmm. i think that um i think I absolutely resonate with the term union in that sense. And I think that um, there was another person who wrote a book uh, about this notion. I can't remember the name of it, so I apologize. But um, she talked about really how we've structured society uh, for many years. And there have been many phases in which we've constructed society. One was under the Godhead, right? So religion, everything in our entire society uh, was structured under religious guises. And then science came along, and then everything kind of became mechanistic, and we saw mm-hmm. everything in, of the world through parts. And we're currently in an economic worldview where everything is widgettized. you know what I mean? And everything is commodified, and the reason we exist is because of the 9 to 5. And so these three big structural models are actually quite interesting in the way in which we've framed our societies over time. So when you're thinking about that next phase, that next revolution of the Godhead, um, that's why I like the term union because it has to not be top down and author- authoritarian because that's the sort of structure that we've been we've been subjects for such a long period of time and not participants. Um, that's, that's part of the illusion making, right? Like that's part of the structure and that's part of the power dynamic that uh, basically allows a small group of elites to rule sure a lot of people.
0: Yeah. The political—I don't know what to call her—Hannah Arendt. She she herself denied the term "philosopher." Said that post uh, Enlightenment, you know, for for all of its for all of the positivity that emerges from that movement, the creation of the individual and our relationship to society fundamentally altered. And we see ourselves now, and this was most resonant for me, as we are not engaged society we are as you say subjects that we don't see ourselves as civically organizing our own spaces i I, I, and since i heard that from hannah arendt that you know that we say we are disengaged like we recognize that whether you're in a mall or a yoga class you are just you are there as in a transactional space you're not there to organize your community we're divorced from the, the you know for the uh the anthropological origins the uh, 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 of systems that we participate in, that we g- operate as a sort of a one unified entity, uh, hunting, gathering, surviving. I'm not obviously, you know, I'm not a barbarian or a bloody idiot. I'm not advocating a return to some sort of simplistic pre-agricultural society. But I'm saying that where possible, technology should be a reflection of where it's possible to even make such claims, a an innate nature, an inherent nature, uh, in order that we might live more harmoniously with ourselves, one another, and our environments. Now, the problem is is that when people usually talk about nature, uh, human nature, is usually used to sort of crowbar in some kind of supremacy or it's just natural that these people should be subjugated or this gender or this sex or this race or this class should be subjugated. That's not what I mean at all. What I'm saying is that there are certain... Biological imperatives. Uh, there are certain traits, tendencies that human beings require, and it seems that the the overall trend is for us to become further and further extracted from them, further and further alienated from them, alienated from nature herself, shall we call it? And and more and 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 I think that this this image, this sort of iconic. Uh, trope that you, not trope, this iconic uh, insight that you identified of we don't see where waste goes, we don't see where energy comes from, and we don't see where food comes from, is part of a kind of induced myopia to prevent people awakening to the true cost of the reality that we are unconsciously participating in.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and what I write about in the book is really how that was constructed, how we ended up in a rat race. You know, why is it then that if we can see these things that we don't have to escape? And that is largely because we've been confined by the way in which we've structured time and space. So Uh, uh, two things 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 that I'm getting feedback. Are you hearing that too?
0: For a moment, you broke up for just for a little second. But it was just when you said time and space. Now, I think what you did is you caused a little quantum ripple there, which you've been threatening to do for a while now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So go and tell us about our like this assumption, the assumptions we make around time and space, because I think this might be important.
1: You know, I think that um, this notion of community and union, one thing that we tend to forget is how we've even obscured that from our language. Because if you think about it, when we talk about taxes, what are taxes really? Taxes are community funds, you know? And if we refer to taxes not as this sort of thing, like it's so taxing for you, it's such a big deal for you to actually contribute. I think we might actually think very differently about how we share what we create and how we share that with our community itself, which is a different way of thinking just based and shaped on our language itself.
0: Yes, I think that that's an interesting observation, but in defense of. Uh, libertarians and anarchists everywhere i would say that because we regard the state as so malevolent and untrustworthy that is for what given money so they can go and bomb some brown people somewhere or you know or so that they could like you know i don't think there's any trust the sort of contract between the governed and the governing has broken down now to the point where like wherever you, well, not wherever, but in a lot of places on the political spectrum, you would say, well, I don't want to pay tax because I don't trust the government. You know, and, like, and I feel that we might be seeing like at the point of some kind of schism where people say, I'm opting out, you know, like United States of America. That's a construct. United Kingdom, construct. Canada, construct. I'm setting up my own thing. I'm living in this. Fuck you! We're in the Confederacy, and then of course they will come because because whenever you set up an organisation that say we we want to live harmoniously with one another and with the planet, fully autonomous groups that are, can include whoever they want to include in their groups as long as they're treating everyone with respect or whatever. Like, but we, you know, there are some people that want to have like might want to run totally m- Muslim communities. Some people that might want to run LGBTQ communities, and I feel that people should be able to do what they want why are we now that we have this sort of through globalization access to all these perspectives how can we ever again unite under a banner not that there's anything to necessarily present uh people that are muslim and people that are lgbtq belonging to the same community i'm sure there's millions of examples of that happening of course but what i mean to say is why are we mediating our entire experience of reality through an and economic and power systems that do not serve us, but serve themselves. What's the point in it? What's the point in continuing to believe in it? Why have an America? Why have an England?
1: You know, that was part of the book, too, is the whole construction of how we develop states, right? After the, the whole, you know, 30 year war and uh, when statehood actually began. And I think that you're right in the sense that, you know, when I look at a place like China, for example, right, when you've got something like 1.4, 1.6, however many billion people there are in China, democracy did not start like that democracy in ancient greece you had a small group of people that's what democracy worked for democracy simply cannot work at such a large scale so i think in the future there will be a large fracturing we will need to actually govern ourselves in a much smaller scale and in that sense then those community funds would make a lot more sense because the problem right now is that we're seeing that you know bridges are breaking down schools here in toronto aren't getting funded you know what i mean because You know, it's not just because people in Canada, but because a lot of rich people, as we know from everything going on with the Panama Panama Papers, aren't even paying their taxes. And Alex Winter did a great documentary on that. It's not that a portion of the economy um, is being sort of tucked away on these offshore accounts. It's the equivalent of an entire economy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The amount of money that is offshore is like three times more than the entire technology uh, economy altogether. It's trillions of dollars. So, you know, we need to start thinking about that stuff.
0: And it's very difficult to make that kind of perspective stick, uh, like on a national or let alone global scale, when the people that benefit from those systems control the means of communication, control the means of production and have no interest in conveying those kind of messages. The only thing that can save save us is a, a radical understanding of reality followed by a revolution, probably of non-participation.
1: Do you think of non-participation? I don't know if I think I'm very... I, I still have a, a fair amount of optimism, as I'm sure you've seen all the amazing stuff that happened, you know, with Greta, with the seven seven million people taking part in the marches, I know you've, uh, you've interviewed Gail from the Extinction Rebellion. You know, people are rising, people are waking up, and we're starting to see changes all around the world. And the wonderful thing is that right now, we are at an advantage. Uh, one of the things that I think about is my grandfather, and my grandfather, you know, survived being in the Second World War, and he lived in a time when, you know, there was destruction, uh, rubble, rape, you know like the economy was a complete absolute disaster and they were able to take a situation that is so much worse than our present day world and rebuild the world that we have today so i think i still have a tremendous amount of faith in humanity and i do still have a tremendous amount of 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 i don't know optimism that if we learn to see we can we can really make big changes again
0: i am optimistic also and i i Completely agree with you. I don't think this change can happen under the auspices of the very organisations and institutions that have created the problem. I think those things need to be dismantled. But and that's where I suppose the radicalism comes from. Uh, But I am one hundred percent, wholeheartedly, more than ever, optimistically committed to change, and very, very grateful to be on the same path as you. It seems if from a. A, a different perspective and certainly from a vastly different degree of understanding because you seem to understand so much and communicate it so beautifully so thank you
1: oh that is so kind of you thank you so much
0: quite a nice little compliment wasn't it actually that that worked out quite well
1: <laughs> sure did yeah well i mean let's just both keep uh bursting the reality bubble
0: let's yes always oh, you've got a catchphrase You've got a blood, <laughs> you are a catchphrase and a wink. What a woman. Zaya, my friend Sai is here. He's on the spiritual path with me. Zaya, what, uh, si, what was your question? I was just interested, you being a
1: scientist, what your view was. I mean, people can say God and it means so many things, but do you believe in another governing force?
0: You know, and what do you identify as God, or if that makes any sense to you?
1: yeah absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm a science communicator, so I'm not a scientist, so I want to be clear about that. Okay. Um, but i I actually think that um there's just so many things that are miraculous that surround us, right? Like some of the biggest questions in the world um, are are you know, just if you think about how we got here, where we're going, where we're coming from, just the miracle of life itself. none right? <laughs> of those things have actually, oh, where am I going? None of those things have, have been answered yet. None of those things have been answered by science, and um, I think that there is something, something, well, I'm I'm certainly glad that we don't necessarily have the answers yet, but there is a magic to life. There is something in the life force. There is some sort of union. Um, scientists may have broken it down to something as simple as DNA and code, but there's, there's definitely a lot more going on there. There is magic, there is mystery, there is the numinous. And uh, mm. I don't have the answers, but I certainly believe that there is more than what science just provides us with.
0: Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with the fantastic Zaya Tong. Let me know what you thought of it on the gram by tagging me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. You can follow me on TikTok now, at Russell Brand, LinkedIn. I'm Russell Brand on all those things. Remember, if you want to come see me in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, tickets are going fast. Get onto RussellBrand.com and get your tickets to Recovery Life. Also, there's that Conscious Life Expo. That's on the 8th of Feb, Santa Barbara, 12th of Feb, California Jam in Costa Mesa. Costa Mesa on the 14th of Feb in San Diego, 19th of February. All this information is at russellbrand.com. Come see me live. Why not go back and listen to Elizabeth Day talking beautifully about womanhood and failing and succeeding and how to build Damien Bradfield on his brilliant understanding of creating cyberspaces and digital businesses and innovation and revolution in a new emerging territory. Keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Thank you for listening to me, Russell Brand, on under the skin from Luminary Media.